KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. The return to some post-pandemic normalcy hinges on the development of a coronavirus vaccine. But it can take years to develop one. There are several testing phases to determine if they are safe and effective. But there's a way to speed up the process. However, it depends on hundreds of people being willing to volunteer to be infected. Dr. Nir Eyal is director for the new Center for Population-Level Bioethics at Rutgers. He's co-authored an article in the Journal of Infectious Diseases calling for controlled human challenge trials to speed up coronavirus vaccine development. Dr. Eyal, thank you so much for joining us. How much, so if we did these, the human challenge trials to speed this up, what are we looking at here? How much quicker would we have a vaccine? I'm not somebody who runs trials or writes about running trials. Uh, What my colleagues tell me is that it could shave off months. How many months depends on many things, including, by the way, whether we are smart and we start today or, frankly, yesterday, the preliminary preparations needed, uh, which take some time, or we're stupid and we start them only sometime in summer when we are done debating whether to conduct challenge trials and uh, then have to wait for months until we can actually start them. The preparations cost moderately. They are not dangerous. They're just converting isolation centers to the purpose, growing virus in a special lab. We should just do that now. So what is a challenge trial? In a challenge trial, you divide maybe 100, 200 participants into people who receive the vaccine that you're trying to assess if it works, and placebo. And then you expose all of them deliberately to the virus. Pretty soon thereafter, you get results on whether more people in the placebo arm got infected than in the vaccine arm. That would be a good indication that the vaccine provides protection, that it works, that it's efficacious. In a regular trial to check the efficacy, things take much longer. You recruit thousands of people and you give them a vaccine to some, the placebo to others, and you send them back home thinking that at some point enough of them will be exposed to the virus that you will start seeing differences. But they are trying to isolate themselves the way you and me are trying to isolate ourselves right now uh, and uh, donning protective gear if they can't avoid that. And It will take months, many months, and it may actually never end. Uh, There are many efficacy trials that don't reach interpretable results. So people at Oxford University that are now running a regular efficacy trial have said to the press, look, this this might never reach interpretable results if the hotspot moves away from the place in Britain where we're doing it. We might then start from scratch. We We might go to Africa, who knows, Um, These many months of delay mean, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the models of how many, many millions of people will die this year alone from COVID and from the diseases that we can't treat when we focus on COVID, it does translate into just unimaginable human suffering. 
So there are obviously significant risks risks here. You're asking people to allow themselves to be injected with a pretty dangerous virus. How do you justify those risks? The risks are much smaller if you focus only on study participants who are young and healthy. In that age group, death can happen, but it is much, much rarer. It's actually rarer than death following kidney donation to somebody else, a live kidney donation. Nobody objects to live kidney donation. Why? Because it's done with the donor's very informed consent, and it does good to one other person. Well, the difference is that in this case, it's likely to do good to many, many, many more people, and it could be done with similar informed consent. So it initially sounds, you know, shocking. Oh, my God, we're giving this virus that is killing a lot of people right now and for which we don't have a therapy. Uh, we have remdesivir, but nothing that, you know, transforms the disease. And in fact, even before we have these therapies, which, by the way, we may develop before the challenge is done, we already know that in the worst case scenario, the numbers are the same numbers as practices that we already not just tolerate, but really endorse with enthusiasm, such as kidney donation. So who would be an acceptable volunteer? You already mentioned uh, age, younger people who would be more likely to basically survive an infection, right? Yeah. So no one who has the comorbidities, the other conditions, um, high blood pressure, obesity, heart problems, etc., that correlate with much more risk from getting the disease. Um, and uh, I recommend focusing the recruitment on areas and on professions where there is a lot of infection expected anyhow. Why, why is that important? For ethical reasons. For people who anyhow would face very high chance of getting infected, and unfortunately there will be many such people and communities in the coming years, you can change their chances of getting infected less dramatically by ensuring in the trial that they do get exposed. So it makes a difference, but not the same vast difference that it makes to somebody who otherwise could completely avoid the infection. Furthermore, in these areas with a lot of infection, sometimes there would be problems accessing critical care, the scarce therapies that we may approve that initially maybe everybody would be fighting over. In the trial, it wouldn't be decent not to guarantee to these study participants who are trying to save humanity the best available access to standard of care, life support, to the best therapies available. And uh, therefore, there would be actual indirectly medical benefits from participating. People may, depending on how exactly the numbers work out, may, given how low the risk of death is for young and healthy people, may improve their medical chances to avoid COVID mortality by participating in the trial. Right, because some of these people are going to get a placebo and some of them are going to get the vaccine. So there's a pretty good chance that a, a certain number of people are going to get sick from this. So the number, in, let's look at the numbers for a minute. Uh, 
In people who are in their 20s, uh, the rate of death from getting infected is currently assessed at one in 3,000 cases. Suppose we're talking about 100 participants and the vaccine in the worst case scenario doesn't work at all. So all 100 participants get infected because of the exposure. Then you would need to run the trial 30 times for one person to die. Now, one in 30 is a, is a real number. It could happen. Still, that number, you know, it's not easy to, to you know, think about this, but it's probably not easy to think about it for doctors who manage kidney donation and save lives this way. And we, we tolerate that because of the informed consent and because of the benefits. I think we should also uh, tolerate that risk here because of the informed consent and because of the enormous benefits. How do you figure out how much of the virus to give them so you don't inadvertently cause an, a, a severe reaction? That's a good question. Uh, the trial is preceded by dose escalation little studies where you little by little, basically you give somebody a s- tiny exposure to the virus. They're probably not going to get infected. Okay, next week you give somebody or you know, sometimes later, sometime later you give somebody more of the virus. If they get infected, okay, you continue, jack it up until um, you ensure that there is indeed infection. Um, You don't go beyond that because that would be unnecessarily large dose and dangerous. So you keep it at basically the minimal dose that ensures infection, but without overexposure. So you're talking about another group of volunteers that would that would do that? Correct. That's part of the preparations, which takes some time because you want to titrate it very Gradually, you don't want to, you, you only move to the next person after you're done checking the first person. That's why we should start now rather than wait uh, long um, until we finally made up our minds and want to start. So basically, you get an injection of the virus and see if you develop the infection. And if you don't, then I'm next in line and I get a little bit of a bigger dose to see if I develop an infection. Do I have that? Do I understand that correctly? Uh, yeah, it, it, it might, it's, it's likely to, the delivery mechanism is likely not to be an injection. It might be, say, a swab uh, in your nose or something of that sort. But yes, that's a technique. So how easy do you think it's going to be to get volunteers to do this? Uh, it sounds like we will never have volunteers. That's what some of us predicted in the first place. But um, there is a group of people who want to do it. They're called One Day Sooner. You can go to their website. It's called onedaysooner.org. And they have recruited, gosh, I checked only yesterday. It was over 16,000, but it, it it expands like the virus and exponential rates. Uh, I, I bet by now it's over 17,000 and probably more. 17,000 um, people who want to volunteer to do this. Correct. Holy moly. So I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I didn't catch the website. What is that again? One day sooner. So the digit one day sooner dot org. Oh, one day org. sooner. Okay. Okay. Now, did this group, um, did this group come about in conjunction with your article in, in response to that or is it? Yes. Okay. All right. So apparently not too hard to find volunteers. So how would... Once you have the people enrolled in the study and they've all obviously been exposed, then how long do you run the study and at what point are they allowed? Because they're going to be isolated, right? 
how when are they allowed kind of back out and to go home? Um, when they are no longer infectious uh, to others, um, and that would be something that uh, the trialists uh, need to judge. It's basically when the immune system is really done um, defeating the virus. Uh, shouldn't be too long, but I take some in encouragement as an ethicist from the fact that this involves something that people totally understand is a very burdensome task, namely being in isolation away from one's family and life for several good weeks. Nobody wants that. Even people who might be suspect to misunderstand the risks involved, this is something that is concrete to us. So the quality of the informed consent here could be indeed very high, not just because we must ensure that people comprehend what they're getting into and give them tests. And if they say, I understand, we will say, okay, but you need to, I'm going to give you a test to check, you know, that you really understand the figures. Um, besides that, it's also not anything that is intrinsically attractive uh, to be a participant in this trial. So they won't get paid for it or do they? That could be determined in different ways. My own inclination is don't pay them. Of course, if they incur expenses, if they travel to the isolation center at their own expense, if they get injured and need medical care, absolutely. But they shouldn't make money off of this. This is my own inclination. I don't think it's a intrinsically very important to do that. It's more for the sake of ensuring that the public sees that these people are really there to do good, understanding the risks, not because there are many people who could definitely do with a job right now in America. Right. So maybe you're, you don't want to attract people who would only be doing it for the money because there's such a high risk. There is a vigorous debate in research ethics about whether it's okay to invite people to participate in a study if their motivation is for the money. Say, is that not okay, even if the study is perfectly safe and all that? It's a complex issue. What I'm saying is my own inclination, and some colleagues may disagree, is in this case, let's not pay. We can afford it. There are 17,000 people out there who want to volunteer anyhow. Yeah. I mean, it's really an interesting debate because you could say scientifically, what does it matter? As long as they're viable, as long as they're, they meet the criteria, all of the criteria for being a volunteer, why does it matter if they're motivated by money or motivated by a desire to do good? I think you're right. I think it's a complex question in itself. It's more for the sake of the public image of this to ensure that people see that the volunteers did it for ideal motivations, not just for acceptable motivations, that I'd rather do it without pay. So we talked about how this would replace, for the most part, phase three of these trials. Could you just briefly tell us what phase one and two are so we know what people are getting into, like at what point they're getting into the study and how, if the vaccines, how safe they've been proven up to that point? Sure. Safety studies is what phase one is about. They involve giving a small group of volunteers the vaccine itself. The vaccine is a first in human molecule. Maybe the vaccine would cause some accident. So in phase one, we check that. Then in phase two, we check that there is some impact on the immune system so that this is 
starting to look promising and may turn out to be efficacious. And then comes the longest stage in vaccine testing, phase three, efficacy testing, where we check whether the vaccine actually works. And this is where challenge trials come in to replace completely or in part in different variants, this particularly long part of vaccine testing. Who would, who would run these trials? It could be a university. It could be a drug manufacturer. There are many entities. that could, It could be NIH. Uh, there are different entities that could do it. Has this ever been done before? We do challenge trials all the time for other diseases like malaria and typhoid. Um, and this is how we identify the seasonal flu vaccine. This disease uh, is uh, something we haven't tried it for. So what would constitute then a successful challenge trial? And, and after, if it is deemed successful, what would be the next step? If the trial is uh, successful, that would mean that we saw either different infection rates between the people who got the vaccine and the people who got uh, placebo or very different viral loads in the two groups. Um, and um, at that point, uh, there are different courses uh, that could be taken. What we proposed in our article is to move to brief safety testing in populations that haven't been represented in the study. So remember, the study, for safety reasons, includes only young and healthy people. But we don't know what the vaccine does to older patients, to people who do have the related comorbidities. Um, any study is going to exclude certain types of populations. Um, So there would be an opportunity to check quickly what the vaccine does to some of the especially interesting other subpopulations. And there are still other ways that this could proceed. But uh, our plan in the paper was that after that safety testing, it would be rolled out to the general population. Isn't there a risk to that, though? Because the point of the phase three trial, the point of taking as long as it does, is that that researchers can look at the people who got the vaccine to make sure there aren't any significant adverse side effects from it. So how, when you, you know, if you're going to roll it out sooner to the general population, how do you mitigate that? Or do you mitigate that? The reason why efficacy testing takes so long is that we are just waiting for enough people to get exposed. The main purpose of Efficacy testing is to check the efficacy, not so much adverse effects of the vaccine. These will have been checked in the safety testing. We can follow up the people who got the vaccine early on for later safety results. Um, in general, if you accelerate things in the efficacy st- in the efficacy stage, that's considered a huge advantage. Uh, we can continue to monitor any adverse events in the population once we roll it out to the population. Um, so, so this is usually how we cope with um, safety issues. What's the response been to your article? Much better than I thought. Uh, I, I was expecting hate mail. Never got a single one. People wrote me very nice things. Uh, a lot of colleagues agree. There is huge interest in world media. Um, there has been some disagreement and people have always been polite and gave us you know, good, good comments, relevant comments, and we discussed them, we're publishing responses. So overall, a healthy discussion. 
What have been the concerns? What have been the arguments that you've gotten that would be against this? One thing that people who have been involved in challenge trial conduct in the past say is this is not the same kind of disease as what we're used to doing challenge trials for. It's not a well-understood disease. Um, There is no cure. We don't know exactly what this does to even young and healthy people sometimes, you know, mysteriously get a stroke and die. And, you know, it can happen. This is what explains these one in 3,000 deaths numbers that I gave before. My response to this is, look, but we know the bottom line, which is that number, only one in 3,000 deaths, which is the same number as what you get from kidney donation that we don't know exactly who it will hit or why it would hit these people. You know, if we knew, sure, that would maybe arm us with further ways to reduce the risk, but um, it's already acceptable as is, so why not do it? Dr. Ayal, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon.